Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, it was a quiet morning in Deerfield, Illinois, on October 4th, 2007. Deerfield is about 26 miles from Chicago making it the ideal commuter village for people searching for somewhere safe to raise their families. Located just a stone's throw from the center of Deerfield lies Elm Street, a leafy neighborhood consisting of well-kept homes and condominiums. The tranquility was shattered just before 8 a.m. when a deafening scream echoed throughout Elm Street, followed by a loud banging sound. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 47 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Ronnie Reuter was born to parents Douglas and Landa Reuter in Dubuque, Iowa, on the 6th of September, 1965. She was the middle child with a younger and older brother, Thad and Wade. The family then moved to the quaint village of Potosi, Wisconsin, where Ronnie took pride in being a cheerleader and a member of the marching band at Potosi High School. At school, Ronnie had taken a keen interest in business classes. Shar Schnenkel, Potosi High School's business education teacher, recalled, She was a good student. She was involved in school activities and, as I remember, was a good role model. Ronnie graduated from Potosi High School in 1983, alongside 70 of her peers. Following graduation, she enrolled at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville, where she earned a bachelor's degree in marketing. Degree in hand, Ronnie packed up her things and moved away from her small town. She set her sights on Chicago because of the fast-paced opportunities that it offered her. She had always been drawn to big cities. With her friendly demeanor and love for fashion, Ronnie slotted into city life perfectly. Despite the distance, Ronnie's family was very close-knit, and the space between them couldn't break the bond she had with her parents. Each evening when Ronnie left work, she would call her parents to check in. The family loved to come to Chicago to visit Ronnie as well, especially her young nieces and nephews, who were mesmerized by the impressive city skyline. Her cousin, Tammy Downs, said to the Telegraph Herald, They had a special bond. Being single and not having her own children gave her extra time to give, and they idolized Aunt Ronnie. She always took time for them. They just loved her dearly. Ronnie also made sure to visit Potosi regularly. While living in Chicago, Ronnie developed an intense love for fitness. 
those who loved her described her as absolutely committed to strenuous self-improvement. She had ambitions to run the Chicago Marathon. When Ronnie wasn't working on herself, she could be found in front of the television, watching Oprah. In fact, when Ronnie got the chance to be on one of Oprah's favorite things, telecasts, she grabbed the opportunity. Ronnie adored the hustle and bustle of city life in Chicago. However, she still remained attached to the rolling hills of her hometown. Her family said that she always retained those solid Midwestern roots. Whenever the family visited, she loved to show them around the city and introduce them to her plethora of friends. She was described as an optimistic and self-confident woman. It was important for her to maintain and nurture the relationships she had developed with her friends and family. As Chris Stombaugh, who was good friends with Ronnie's brother, said, She had no enemies. She was the most open and accepting person you'll ever want to meet. Her cousin, Tammy Downs, said of Ronnie, She was very friendly, outgoing, and energetic. She had this laugh. It was just that contagious. It was definitely a Ronnie thing, a really neat thing. In 1999, Ronnie met Sean Gale. Sean had been drafted out of Ohio State and had joined the Chicago Bears in 1984. He was a nickelback and special teams captain for the 1985 team. The highlight of his football career came that same year when the Bears won the Super Bowl. Sean had played with the Bears longer than any member of the championship team. He left Chicago in 1994 and played one final year with the San Diego Chargers. That same year, he was voted by his teammates as the Veteran Piccolo Award. This award is reserved for NFL players who embody the loyalty, teamwork, and sense of humor of Brian Piccolo, who was a former Bears fullback who died of cancer in 1970. Following Sean's retirement, he became heavily involved in sports marketing and broadcasting. He also took up writing and published a number of children's books that made up the series, Sean Gale's Sports Tales. In September of 2008, Ronnie learned that she was pregnant with a baby girl. She could not have been happier. There was nothing Ronnie wanted more in life than to be a mother. She picked the name Skylar, and, as Cousin Tammy said, all she would talk about lately was being a mom, having a little girl, Down said. Every woman wants a little girl to dress up. She was glowing. She couldn't wait for next year to show Skylar off to all of us at the annual family reunion. With each month that passed and Ronnie's belly grew, she became more excited for the arrival of her baby girl. She and Sean weren't in a steady relationship. Sean lived a jet-setter lifestyle, traveling all across the world, and he couldn't commit to just one woman. By October, Ronnie was seven months pregnant and was already well-prepared for the new addition to her family, having hand-picked an entire wardrobe filled with clothing and toys. It was around 7.50 a.m. on October 4, 2007. A woman was leaving her condominium on Elm Street in Deerfield to head to work. As she was walking toward her car, she observed somebody wearing dark clothing, face paint, and a wig walking up the condominium staircase. Moments later, another resident at the condominium heard a woman screaming, followed by a loud banging sound and a crash. The neighbor immediately called the police. I heard a woman screaming and then a pop pop and it went totally silent. I called my other neighbor upstairs and she is pregnant and, and she does not answer. Police arrived at the condominium in a couple of minutes. 
They were directed to one of the condominiums on the second floor of the complex where they observed that the front door was lying wide open. They could see blood spatter on the floor just inside the doorway. Then they followed the source of the blood into the kitchen, where they found a woman lying face down on the floor, surrounded by a pool of blood. She was cradling her belly, and investigators could see that she was heavily pregnant. As the tragic scene was being discovered, paramedics arrived and began to perform life-saving measures on the woman. Despite their valiant attempts, she could not be revived. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Near the body, investigators found spent 9mm casings, as well as five unfired rounds. With the assistance of identification found inside the condominium, the deceased woman was identified as 41-year-old Ronnie Reuter. She was seven months pregnant with her first child. The condo quickly transformed into a crime scene as forensic experts arrived to begin their examination. They discovered that there was no sign of forced entry at the condo, leading them to speculate that Ronnie had opened up the front door to her killer. They also established that nothing inside the condo had been stolen, ruling out robbery as a motivation. In Ronnie's purse, investigators found a typed, unsigned letter which warned, quote, what your boyfriend is doing. The writer of the letter claimed that they had found out everything and then divulged that Sean was being unfaithful and maintaining relationships with women all over the world. It read that Sean was giving disease to every other woman. The letter provided the names of 16 other women and implored Ronnie to contact the women so you can see for yourself. Meanwhile, Ronnie's body was transported to the medical examiner's office for an autopsy to be performed. First, Lake County Coroner Richard Keller had the harrowing task of removing Skyler from Ronnie's womb. He needed to perform autopsies on both Ronnie and her unborn child in the event double homicide charges were to be filed. It was determined that Ronnie had been shot seven times, including once in the head, once in the chest, and twice in the abdomen. There were bullet wounds to Ronnie's hands, indicating that she had attempted to shield her unborn baby from gunfire, but to no avail. Skyler had sustained two gunshot wounds. Around 25 detectives from Deerfield and the Lake County Major Crimes Task Force assembled to take on the case, which was the first homicide in Deerfield in 38 years. They streamed into Deerfield Police Station to set up camp. The Lake County Major Crimes Task Force exists specifically to help smaller police departments, such as Deerfield, investigate major crimes. They only handle five kinds of cases homicides, non-parental kidnappings, police-involved shootings, death while in police custody, and heinous crimes. With a 97% success rate, the task force were optimistic that they could solve the case expeditiously. As investigators searched for the elusive killer, they put a nearby school on temporary lockdown. Calls from concerned parents came flooding in as rumors began running rampant that a gunman was on the loose near the school. The lockdown only lasted a couple of hours as investigators announced that they did not believe that the shooting was random and that there was no immediate threat to the public. As parents were picking up their terrified children, Sean, who was at a barber shop in Chicago at the time, was informed that there was a shooting at Ronnie's home. 
he called up the police only to learn that Ronnie was the victim. Deerfield Police Department. I'm calling about that shooting in, in Deerfield. Yes. Um, listen, I've been getting calls from the, the, the media. This is Sean Gale, and they're trying to say they're naming me as a suspect. Hold on, please. Is, 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 was it Ronnie Ryder? Is she okay? Uh, yes, it was Ronnie, and no, she's not. She's, she's dead? He immediately made his way to the Deerfield Police Department. As he was being interviewed, the media scrambled to his townhome in Chicago, where they observed plainclothes police officers removing a bag of garbage. Sean's attorney, Terry Rizzo, spoke to the media, telling them, We're not making any comments. Obviously, he's upset. When he's ready to talk to the media, we'll talk. Due to the activity at Sean's home, speculation ran rampant that Sean was somehow involved in Ronnie's murder. However, investigators quickly dispelled any rumors, announcing that he was not a suspect. As soon as Ronnie was identified as the murder victim, media trucks descended on Deerfield en masse. They gathered outside the crime scene and at the police station as reporters jostled to get information from the investigators or from neighbors. Deerfield has always been a safe area and murders were very rare. One resident referred to the media buzz as hullabaloo. It wouldn't be long before a person of interest in the murder case emerged. The year before the shooting, Sean had complained to friends that a former girlfriend had been harassing Ronnie and other female friends of his. The woman, personal trainer Monica Karaska, had dated Sean for around five or six months before the relationship ended in May of 2006. Monica did not take the breakup well. When she learned that Sean was already involved with other women, she proceeded to send them harassing letters. Sean had sought an order of protection against Monica, and, for a while, the letters stopped. Sean let the protection order lapse when he believed Monica was moving back to her home country of Poland. That was until the months leading up to Ronnie's murder, when the letters and emails started up again. Investigators theorized that based on the broken English, the letter found in Ronnie's purse had come from Monica. Before Sean had been made aware of Ronnie's murder, he had asked his attorney to file a new complaint against Monica, claiming she had violated the order. Monica certainly seemed like a plausible suspect. Investigators tracked her down and brought her in to be questioned. She staunchly denied any involvement in the shooting and in sending the letters and emails. But investigators needed to be sure. Investigators looked into Monica, but they could find no connection between her and the murder of Ronnie and ruled her out as a suspect, with Deputy Police Chief Thomas Keene stating, she is not a suspect at all. That afternoon, Sean provided a public statement for the first time. He said, I am extremely devastated by the loss of Ronnie and our unborn child. She was a kind, loving, and beautiful woman. 
I will continue to cooperate with the police in any way possible in finding who committed this horrific crime. With both Monica and Sean ruled out as suspects in the murder, investigators were back at square one. They were still interviewing all of Ronnie's neighbors to try and find out if anybody had seen anything suspicious that morning. One neighbor informed them that they had seen a black male teenager with dark curly hair and dark clothing running across the road near Ronnie's condo around the time of the shooting. Investigators wanted to track this teenage boy down, but urged the public that it was just one angle they were looking into and implored them not to make too much of the lead, at least not yet anyway. As investigators tried to find this teenage boy, Ronnie's family issued a statement which read, We are grateful for the efforts of law enforcement to solve this unspeakable crime and trust that those responsible will quickly be brought to justice. The search for Ronnie's killer was in full swing by the time she was laid to rest on the 8th of October, the same date as her parents' wedding anniversary. Hundreds of mourners descended on St. Thomas Catholic Church in Potosi. They shuffled into the red brick church and took their respective places in the pews. Ronnie's open black casket was situated at the front of the church. She was cradling Skylar Rain in her arms. It was only in death that Ronnie was finally able to hold her much-anticipated baby girl for the first time. At the request of the family, the media stayed away from the funeral. Ronnie's loved ones wanted the funeral to be special. After the service, her family provided a statement which read, Ronnie's left arm cradled her tiny daughter Skylar in an open black coffin. At last, at age 42, Ronnie's dream of sharing her life with a child was finally nearing reality. We know Ronnie would have been a wonderful mom, if only given the chance. A chance stolen from her at gunpoint last Thursday morning. It was a murder and robbery of the worst kind. While they say nothing was taken, for us, for Ronnie, and for Skylar, everything has been lost. The days continued to trickle past as investigators struggled to identify a suspect. By October 18th, it had been two weeks since Ronnie was shot dead. Despite the passage of time, her family remained optimistic that the killer would be caught. Her younger brother, Thad, said to the Chicago Sun-Times, We have a positive attitude. We believe this person is going to be found. Life is standing still for us till we find out who did it. It's tough to go to work, to do much of anything. While investigators were working on the theory that Ronnie had been targeted, her family were not so sure. Her mother, Landa, said she couldn't think of anybody who would want to harm her daughter. She never had an enemy in the world, she said. Ronnie's parents would send a letter to the media titled, We Can't Thank You Enough, in which they thanked everybody for their support over the past two weeks. It read, in part, Our hearts overflow with thankfulness for the prayers, cards, gifts, flowers, phone calls, and visits. Ronnie was blessed to have such wonderful people surrounding her with their love. Investigators had hoped that an arrest would have been made by now, but they too were remaining positive. Under Sheriff Charles Fagan commented, I can't remember when a case hasn't been solved by the task force. It gives you force and numbers. It puts all of the investigators, evidence techs, and equipment together, all devoted to one case. By November, 
investigators were following up on more than 100 leads that had been logged. That same month, Lake County Coroner Richard Keller announced that he had ruled both Ronnie and Skyler's deaths as homicide. He ruled that Ronnie had died from multiple gunshot wounds while Skyler had died from the blood loss her mother suffered. He said that because Skyler would have been able to survive outside of the womb, the second homicide charge was warranted. Eventually, the days transformed into weeks and the weeks into months. Investigators were still trying to identify the unknown teenager who was seen running near Ronnie's apartment in the wake of the murder. In June, Ronnie's loved ones planned a memorial walk to honor her life and keep her unsolved murder in the spotlight. All donations made from the walk went to the Ronnie Reuter Memorial Fund, which was a college scholarship fund established in Potosi. In speaking of the fund, Ronnie's brother Thad said, It helps us to know Ronnie's memory lives on and that we can help someone live their dream with the scholarship fund. October 2008 rolled around, and it was the first anniversary of Ronnie's murder. Investigators announced that the leads they had followed had only led to dead ends, but still, they remained optimistic. With Deerfield Police Chief Rick Wilkes stating, We are very confident that we are going to solve this case. Landa spoke with Lake County News Sun at her home to speak about how tough the past year had been on the family. Their grief was further compounded by the fact that the case remained unsolved. She said to the news reporter, We just miss her something terrible. It hasn't changed a whole lot. I guess probably because it hasn't been solved, and we just want some closure. Behind the scenes, investigators were working hard at identifying a suspect. All of their initial leads hadn't panned out, but they continued looking into people who knew both Ronnie and those closest to her. They had learned of 41-year-old Marnie K. Yang from her friend, Julie Fields, who revealed that Yang was obsessed with Sean. While Ronnie and Sean had been together for 18 years, their relationship was periodically on and off, and Sean was seeing other women throughout those 18 years. In 2005, Sean met Yang at a Chicago Bears convention where she worked in security. At first, the relationship was strictly platonic. Yang also worked as a realtor, and she became something of a business partner for Sean in several real estate ventures. Over time, however, the relationship developed into a sexual relationship, and Yang became obsessed. Conversations between Yang and her friends always focused on Sean. Yang confessed to her co-worker, Maggie Zimmer, that she had hacked Sean's email account. Whenever an email came in from a woman, Yang examined it thoroughly and began to develop a hatred of all the other women that Sean was interacting with. She quickly learned of Sean's relationship with Ronnie and flew into a rage when she learned he was taking her on a trip to Europe. In a desperate bid to ruin the trip, Yang called the hotel they had booked and canceled the reservation. She confided in her friend Julie of her attempts to sabotage the vacation. In addition to Yang and Ronnie, Sean was involved in a romantic relationship with Monica Karaska. Yang imitated Monica and began to send threatening emails and text messages to Ronnie and other women that interacted with Sean. Both Sean and Ronnie were utterly oblivious to the fact that the interactions were actually from Yang, and Sean sought an order of protection against Monica. By 2007, Yang was furious by the non-exclusive nature of her relationship with Sean, and she began to tell her friends that she was going to kill him. 
When she learned that Ronnie was pregnant, that immense rage transferred from Sean onto Ronnie. She told her friend of 20 years, Christy Paschen, that she didn't believe that Ronnie was capable of being a good mother and that she didn't deserve to have a child. Christy attempted to calm Yang down, telling her that neither Ronnie nor Sean deserved to die and that she should move on with her life. But Yang was a woman obsessed. While looking into Yang as a suspect, investigators searched her trash. They found a broken computer hard drive as well as some bank statements that showed Yang had paid for a handful of background checks on women in Sean's life, including Ronnie. Investigators then obtained a search warrant for Yang's home, where they found several typed letters that were eerily similar to the letter found inside Ronnie's purse. With circumstantial evidence mounting, investigators executed a search warrant on Yang's work computer. On the computer, they found that she had obtained driving directions from her work to Ronnie's condominium. It was looking more and more likely that Yang was the killer, but investigators needed more than just circumstantial evidence. They obtained court orders allowing them to tap Yang's cell phone. Investigators listened in on all of her conversations until they came across a conversation between Yang and Christy. During this conversation, Yang made incriminating statements alluding to the murder of Ronnie. Investigators made contact with Christy and she came clean. She told investigators that Yang had confessed to murdering Ronnie to her, but said that she had been too afraid to contact the police. Yang told Christy that after the shooting, she had thrown away sweatpants, a jacket, and a wig that she had put on before the murder. After divulging this information to investigators, Christy led them to a forest preserve where Yang told her she had buried something she had stolen from Ronnie. It was a silver and pearl bracelet with the word pregnant on it. One of Ronnie's friends identified it as belonging to Ronnie. Believing that Yang was their prime suspect, but needing more than circumstantial evidence, Christy agreed to wear a body wire. Investigators then set up a wire room where they could listen to the conversations. It was the first time in Lake County history that such a tactic had been used. Christy then arranged to meet Yang at a local Denny's. The conversation quickly turned to the murder of Ronnie after Christy informed Yang that she had been contacted by the police. Yang told Christy that investigators were still searching for the teenager who was seen running near the crime scene before stating that she had encased the murder weapon in a bucket of cement that she then threw into a Chicago dumpster. So of course I'm going to finally ask the question I told you I never ever wanted to know. When you hit the gun, did you hide it real well? It's gone. It's on your tons and tons and tons of Chicago trash. Yang assured Christy that investigators would never catch her and that if they had their ducks in a row, they'd be at my house with a pair of handcuffs. The next day, Yang and Christy met up once again, and this time, Yang provided a full and detailed confession to the murder. She stated, I had a hoodie on, okay? I had dark makeup on my face, and I had gloves on, okay? When she opened up the door, that's when I, that's when I brought out the gun. And when she saw it, she started screaming, and I just let her have it. I just let her have it. I think I maybe took two big steps into the kitchen to make sure she... okay? And then I left. What did you see? It was so dark I wasn't even positive that I was making straight shots. 
and she started screaming. I took, I took the first shot. She then continued, All I saw was everything in shadows. The kitchen was dark, okay? In fact, it was so dark, I wasn't even positive I was making straight shots, okay? Didn't even, didn't. She, she opened up the door, and all she saw was a dark-skinned person with sunglasses holding a gun like this, with a hoodie on, okay? And she, she started screaming. I took the first shot. I remember screaming, because at that point, I realized we are now at the point of no return, okay? Any thoughts we had about turning back? We got to finish this now. And I just started emptying the clip. Um, she went, because she had already started to come out of the apartment. She went backwards into the kitchen, fell against the counter, fell against a counter with the floor, and it was all in shadows. It was all in shadows. And then when she went down, she took her foot, and she took one good kick at me, got me in the shin. That was it. I just I took one last shot. And then On March 3rd, 2009, Yang was arrested at her home in North St. Louis, Chicago, without incident. In announcing the arrest, Lake County State's attorney Michael Waller said, Yang admitted to how she disposed of the gun and some other details. Some of the things she said could only have been known by the murderer. The evidence used to make the break, in this case, came from the defendant's own words. Following Yang's arrest, Sean spoke publicly through his attorney, Donna Rotano but categorized their relationship as strictly professional and friendly. He completely denied having a romantic or sexual relationship with the prime suspect, stating, a lot of it was created in her own mind. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. During a pretrial hearing, prosecutors detailed the evidence they had gathered against Yang. She was ordered held without bond. Outside of court, Ronnie's family provided a statement through their attorney, Christopher Stombaugh. They said they were relieved the suspect was finally off the streets and were preparing themselves for what lay ahead. The statement read, in part, not a day goes by that we do not think about them and what might have been. According to investigators, in the months before Ronnie was killed, Yang began plotting. She purchased a book titled How to Make a Disposable Silencer, and after reading the book from cover to cover, she went to Home Depot to pick up the items she needed, including a keyhole saw, a hacksaw, rubber cups, duct tape, electrical tape, a marker, a file, a folding razor, and a one-inch metal hose clamp. Yang had owned a 9mm, the same gun used in the shooting, since 2005. In August and September, Yang took that gun to a shooting range and began to practice her aim. Then, the day before the shooting, 
Yang exchanged a Kia rental car for a Volkswagen rental car. She fitted her new Volkswagen with stolen license plates. She then drove to a nearby drugstore and purchased a shower cap and a hairnet. That night, Yang drove over to Christie's home, where she planned on staying the night. Yang told Christie of her plans to kill Ronnie the next morning. She asked her friend to read her tarot cards to determine whether the shooting would be successful. Yang then told Christie that if she succeeded in the murder, she would text her the next day with a coded message. That message would be inviting Christie for dinner. For months, Yang had been speaking about killing Ronnie. Still, Christie told investigators, she never believed that the threats were real. On the morning of the murder, investigators claimed Yang donned her disguise and then drove her rental car over to Ronnie's condominium. She approached Ronnie's condo and waited for her to open the door to leave for work. She took up her vantage point just a couple of feet away. She raised the 9mm and stood for several moments. When Ronnie opened the door, she saw Yang armed with the gun. Ronnie began to scream before Yang opened fire, shooting her twice in the stomach. Ronnie staggered back into the kitchen where she fell on the floor. Yang followed close behind as she said to Christy she wanted to ensure she was dead. She then shot Ronnie once in the head. As Ronnie lay dying, Yang stole her bracelet. After fleeing from the home, Yang texted Christy the coded message confirming the murder had been completed. That evening, Yang showed up at Christy's home and confessed to the murder. Yang then suggested that she and Christy go on a drive, and they drove around Arlington Heights as Yang disposed of the items used in the murder. The following day, Yang removed the phony license plate and returned the Volkswagen to the rental agency. According to the odometer, the Volkswagen had traveled a total of 40 miles. This was the exact distance from the rental agency to the home of Christie to Ronnie's home and then back to the rental agency. When Yang was initially brought in for questioning, she was presented with the evidence gathered against her. During her interrogation, she denied killing Ronnie, but provided vague answers when questioned. She admitted that she had owned a 9mm gun, but claimed to investigators it had been stolen sometime before the shooting. She provided investigators with a list of names of people who may have had access to the weapon, including her 16-year-old son, Andrew. When asked about the book she had purchased on how to build a silencer, she, first of all, claimed it was a gag gift. When asked about the items she had purchased that were detailed in the book, she said that it was for a school project on noise dispersion for one of her children. Did you ever put anything like this together or buy anything, you know? As far as to build one of those? Yeah, no, yeah, no, because I, this is, you know. No, but it gave me a really good idea for a science project. You tell us that it was a gag mm-hmm. and that you then purchased items from the book um, matching up to try to see if you could make one of these things for a science project. Right. She stated, we never really built the silencer for the science project. I wanted to use firecrackers to demonstrate it, but could not figure out how to do it without blowing someone's hand off. She admitted to being obsessed and gathering information on Ronnie and other romantic interests of Sean, but said she may have been a snoop, but not a killer. Did you check all the girls on the list? Probably, probably most of them. Did you ever attempt to contact those people as far as in an effort to find out 
anything about them or what their relationship was she was shown or anything else? Oh, I might dial the number just to see if I could, you know, sometimes you can get a feeling from the person's voicemail if, uh, you know, it's business or not. Was there ever any conflict between you and Ron? I never met her. I never met her. I never spoke to her. I never, if I'm going to be involved with you on any level and you're going to be coming in contact with my kids, you better believe that I want to know and I want to understand everybody else that's associated with you. The conversation then turned to her relationship with Sean. Yang told investigators that just the night before Ronnie's murder, she had gone to Sean's home where they had sex. Afterwards, she left because Sean wasn't feeling well. She said to Detective Charles Schletz, a lot of times, I would stay the night and go the next day. During the interrogation, Yang was informed that her two children thought she may have been involved in the murder. When informed of such, Yang acted surprised and said she didn't understand why her children would say such a thing. Her son, Andrew, had told investigators that after the murder, he believed his mother was trying to suggest he provide her with an alibi. Detective Schletz said, He told us you said to him, You remember, I was home that day, and you helped me with the battery. And he thought that was strange because it was his recollection that you were not at home and he said he never helped you with the battery. This was the alibi that Yang had first provided investigators with. She had claimed that she was home on the day of the shooting because the battery in her car had stopped working and her son needed to help her install a new one. As for Yang's daughter, Emily, she also told investigators she believed her mother was involved with the murder. Her daughter knew she was doing background checks on the other women Sean had been dating, including Ronnie. She told investigators that her mother often complained that Sean was dating other women. On March 24th, a grand jury indicted Yang on charges of intentional homicide of an unborn child stemming from the murder of Ronnie. They also indicted her on nine counts of first-degree murder for Ronnie's death. Yang pleaded not guilty to all of the charges, and she was ordered to stand trial. Her defense attorney, William Hendrick, then requested the trial be moved out of Lake County. Following her arrest, Dateline had produced a program on the case, and defense attorney Hendrick argued that it had destroyed her ability to get a fair trial in Lake County. He stated, We have seen extensive pretrial publicity which is both prejudicial and inflammatory. We feel this community is so poisoned against her that it would be impossible for an impartial jury to be impaneled. Circuit Judge Victoria Rossetti refused to move the trial. Defense attorney Hendrick would then announce that they were having an expert evaluate Yang's mental fitness to determine whether she was competent to stand trial. In June, the results came back, and it was determined that Yang was competent. Yang's defense team would then attempt to get her statements to investigators thrown out as evidence. They argued that Yang was not properly advised of her rights. Judge Christopher Stride granted their motion, and her statements were suppressed. Before the trial began, Yang's defense would argue that evidence regarding Ronnie and Sean's relationship should be allowed to be presented. They wanted to suggest that Sean had pressured Ronnie into aborting two prior pregnancies. The defense team wanted to tell the jury that Sean was allegedly unhappy that Ronnie had become pregnant and had threatened to sue her and take custody of the baby. They also wanted to allege that Sean had pushed Ronnie shortly before her murder. 
However, Judge Christopher Stride referred to these claims as too speculative. He ruled that they could not be presented during trial. By March 3, 2011, the jury were selected, and Marnie Yang's murder trial was ready to begin. During opening statements, Prosecutor Pat Fix said that Yang was so obsessed with Sean that she was willing to kill anybody she looked at as competition, particularly his longtime pregnant girlfriend. She stated, She wanted to kill this person who was pregnant with Sean Gale's child. She then told the jury how Yang had stood in front of Ronnie and executed her. She contended that she purposefully fired the first two bullets into Ronnie's stomach to kill her unborn baby. According to Prosecutor Fix, when Yang found out that Ronnie was pregnant, it was a game-changer, resulting in her creating a more precise plan to eliminate the competition. Defense attorney William Hendrick painted another picture. He scoffed at the claims Yang was obsessed with Sean. She said they were dating on and off while Yang was involved in a long-term relationship with a police officer named Sal Devera. He said to the jury, Marnie Yang was not obsessed with Sean Gale. She understood Sean Gale had many women, a whole list of women. There was no obsession here. There was not a motive for her acting in the fashion she's accused of. He accused investigators of focusing on Yang while ignoring other suspects, which included 19 other women who Sean may have been romantically involved with. He stated, They concluded Marnie Yang must have done it, to the exclusion of all other suspects. On the first day of the trial, the jury would hear about the items found in Yang's trash, including a computer hard drive and bank statements showing the items she had purchased to allegedly make a silencer. Sean also testified as a prosecution witness. While he first denied it in the immediate aftermath of Yang's arrest, he admitted on the witness stand that he and Yang had been in a sexual relationship, even revealing that they had had sex the night before Ronnie was killed. He said to the jury, from time to time, it would change into a personal relationship. Testimony would also be heard from some of Yang's friends, friends who knew that she was monitoring Sean's emails. One friend, Marguerite Zimmer, said to the jury, when Sean would go into the shower, she would take his passwords. The former boyfriend of Yang, Sal Devera, divulged to the courtroom that he had taken her to a shooting range on several occasions in the months before the shooting. He said that she had a 9mm Beretta semi-automatic pistol, but since the murder, it had inexplicably vanished. The star witness of the trial was Christy Passion, the friend who Yang confessed to. Defense attorney Hendrick tore into Christy, who he referred to as a self-professed psychic and tarot card reader. He said that she was unreliable and that she had made goofy claims to investigators about using her mental abilities while serving in a secret military assassination unit in the Middle East. Christie spoke about this alleged secret military unit during the trial, telling the jury that an army general recruited her to look for intelligence information. She said that in a final Middle East mission, all of the members were killed except for her, that the army then erased most of her memories from the alleged incident. According to the Lake County Major Crimes Task Force, Christie had made up the tale to pad her resume as a psychic. Prosecutors would then play aloud the wiretapped conversations between Christie and Yang. The recorded conversations were damning to the defense's case. At one point during the conversation, Yang told Christie to stop shaking. She tried to comfort her friend by telling her, Nobody could identify me driving away from the scene. 
Yang was captured on the recording device talking about the murder. She could be heard saying, I stood outside in the hallway. I had a wig on. She started screaming. I took the first shot. I remember screaming, because at that point, we are now at the point of no return. We gotta finish this now. And I just started emptying the clip. The wiretapped conversations were the smoking gun of the case, but the defense tried to attack Christie's credibility. During cross-examination, defense attorney Hendrick pointed out that Christie didn't go to the police with Yang's confession. When they first spoke with Christie, she claimed to know nothing about Ronnie's murder. She said, I was afraid. I was afraid of Marnie, and I was afraid of what I did. I feel guilty today for not going to the police and warning people, but I really didn't think it would happen. Yang's defense team then presented evidence to show that an unidentified fingerprint was found on Ronnie's doorknob. They did not call Yang to testify on her own behalf. After this testimony, both the prosecution and the defense rested. During closing arguments, Prosecutor Fix referred to the murder of Ronnie and Skyler as a very well-planned, carefully thought-out execution. She stated, The actions of the defendant were colder than anything I've ever seen in my life. Defense attorney Hendrick countered this and referred to the recorded confession as a conversation among two friends trying to one-up each other in telling wild stories. The jury deliberated for just four hours before returning with a verdict. They found Marnie Yang guilty of first-degree murder and the intentional homicide of an unborn child. Outside of court, Ronnie's family shared their relief with the verdict. Her brother Thad said, We're overjoyed with the jury's verdict. Justice has been served. But still, he said that the verdict would not bring back Ronnie or Skylar. He stated, They'll always be missed in our lives, but they'll always live with us in our hearts. The sentencing phase of the trial followed in May. Yang refused to speak, but defense attorney Hendrick read a three-sentence statement on her behalf. It read, I would like to express my sorrow to the family. This is a tragic thing for any family to experience. I am truly sorry for their loss. Sean had planned on making a victim impact statement but opted against it after learning that Yang's defense team had filed a motion challenging his paternity of Skylar. Ronnie's brother, Thad, would provide a victim impact statement offering an insight into his family's grief. He stood up before the microphone and stated, Instead of planning a celebration of bringing a new life into the world, we were planning a double funeral. It's just not fair. We should have had so many more years and memories together. Marty Yang was ultimately sentenced to life in prison. In handing down the sentence, Judge Christopher Stride told Yang that the methodical, meticulous, and maniacal manner of the murder made it different from other murder cases. He then added, as a result, two people are lost forever. Outside of court, Sean's attorney, Donna Rotano, read aloud a statement that Sean had written. It read, How could you shoot a woman seven months pregnant who had never harmed you? I will just continue to tell myself that you are an evil, sick, deplorable woman who committed cold and calculated actions. You do not deserve to ever see the light of day. You deserve to spend the rest of your life in a cage like the animal you are. When you stood in Ronnie's doorway and executed her and killed our daughter, 
you took my life too. After the sentence was imposed, Marnie Yang's defense team attempted to get a retrial. They argued that Yang should have been allowed to get her hair done and wear makeup before appearing in court each morning. Defense attorney Hendricks stated, She looked drawn and haggard. We're worried the jury thought she had a mental disorder. We feel that because Yang was forced to appear with her hair uncut and without makeup, that the defendant appeared as a prisoner. If the jury gets wind of her imprisonment, the presumption of innocence ceases to exist. Prosecutor Fix fought back. She called on Lake County Jail Chief Jennifer Witherspoon, who stated that Yang had chosen not to get her hair cut before the trial, and then added, Makeup cannot be brought into jail for several reasons. The request was denied. Ronnie's family would subsequently file a civil lawsuit against Yang, and she would be ordered to pay them $40 million. In early 2013, defense attorney Alan Ackerman attempted once more to get a new trial for Yang. He argued before an appellate court panel that the confession Yang made to Christie should not have been entered into evidence and accused investigators of coaxing Christie. Then, in November of that year, Yang launched an appeal. Attorney Jed Stone announced he was requesting DNA testing on the shells from the bullets used to kill Ronnie. A judge approved the DNA tests. In 2019, defense attorney Stone announced he was very close to filing a post-conviction petition alleging actual innocence. In October of that year, he filed a petition contending that there was evidence to prove Yang did not shoot Ronnie. While speaking to reporters, he stated, Lake County, Illinois has become the epicenter of wrongful convictions in the United States. Marnie's case is a textbook example of that kind of wrongful conviction, prosecutorial misconduct, police misconduct, trial errors. He claimed Yang's children were threatened into making incriminating statements about Yang and said that DNA testing on the shells showed the presence of unknown male DNA, but none of Yang. The now adult son of Yang, Andrew, said to reporters that his mother was forced to confess to something she did not do because the family were being hounded by investigators. He stated, They just wanted a conviction. I don't think any kid at my age should go through what I went through. Marty Yang's defense team revealed that among the wiretapped conversations was one in which Yang allegedly said she was going to start making things up shortly before she confessed to the murder. They said that this recording was never turned over to the defense team under rules of evidence. Yang's father, Larry Merrer, stated, She couldn't stand by and watch them destroy her children, especially Andrew, who was close to being suicidal. No one bothered to tell the jury the confession was made up. In December, Judge Christopher Stride said that the petition Yang's attorneys had filed had merit and could proceed. The following month, defense attorney Stone called Sean's alibi from the time of the murder into question. Sean had told investigators he was at a barber shop, and Yang's defense team were now requesting the full video recording from inside the barber shop on the morning of Ronnie's murder. In addition to this, the defense team were granted permission to test the mystery fingerprint found on Ronnie's door handle. There had been speculation that the fingerprint was left unintentionally by investigators, but when it was tested, it didn't come back as a match to anybody who had been at the crime scene. This led Yang's defense team to ask for the case to be reopened, and they called on world-renowned forensic psychologist, Dr. Cyril H. Wecht, to back their claims that somebody else was the shooter. In their ongoing attempt to free Yang, 
they provided a videotape from Dr. Wecht in which he stated, I believe that the person who shot and killed Ronnie Reuter would have to have been 5 foot 10 inches or taller. I do not believe that Marnie Yang, who is only about 5 feet or so, could have possibly inflicted the fatal gunshot wound. In January 2022, a new potential witness came forward to implicate Sean in the murder of Ronnie. It was the owner of the barbershop where Sean had been shortly after the murder. According to the owner, Sean appeared in an agitated state and said, I did it. She's gone. As of today, Marnie Yang is still fighting for her freedom as her defense team attempt to get her a new trial. Ronnie's family still believe that the right person is behind bars, with Thad commenting to the Chicago Tribune, Anyone who followed this even remotely and saw the amount of evidence they have against her and what she actually said on a wiretap would agree that this is an open and shut case. We believe this is just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. She's throwing a Hail Mary to see if she can get her get-out-of-jail-free card. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening and please be safe.